Today, as we continue our study in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we find ourselves uh, opening a new section of Paul's letter that extends for the next three chapters. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 share a common theme. It is the working of the Holy Spirit among His people uh, and gifting them and empowering them for service with one another in the way that He works in His church. Uh, You may know that there is, uh, as Luke would put it, not a little controversy over some of the things that we're going to read in the next three chapters. And so I want to give you the lay of the land, as it were, as we approach, because we want to go about this in the same way that Paul is going about this. And he has a few discernible foci, uh, a few little things that he's zeroing in on, and we want to follow his direction and the way that he's building his argument. Lord willing, today we are going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 12, where the main focus is the Spirit. Lord willing, next week we're going to look at the remainder of chapter 12, where the second main focus is the body. And in chapter 13, we'll see the focus of Christian love, and then and only then, in chapter 14, will we focus in on some of those controversial gifts. If we get ahead of ourselves here, we're going to be running afoul of a lot of things. Some of it's all going to be sprinkled together. We can't talk about some of these things in isolation. We're going to have to look at them all together. But I want you to know that if you want to be here for the fireworks, make sure you're here for chapter 14. I don't think there are going to be any fireworks, Lord willing. Uh, Hopefully not. I haven't set up any pyrotechnics for our services in the coming months. Uh, But our study from 12 to 14 is is going to occupy us uh, until the Christmas season. This is what we're going to be looking at for a while. And it's it's important that you understand the way that we're approaching it. More importantly, that you understand the way Paul is approaching it. So four different uh, foci, the spirit, the body, love, and gifts. That's the way we're going to proceed today, looking at the work of the spirit. If you haven't found it yet in our ESVs, you can find it on page 959 of the CART Bibles beginning in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Before we read God's word, let us go again to his throne of grace and ask that he would give us wisdom to see what's written here. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, giver of all wisdom, you who give to those who ask unbegrudgingly, we pray for wisdom and insight to understand the working of your spirit among your people. Give us discernment of what you're doing. Help us to understand this beautiful and varied ministry that you work among your people. Help us to see something here that points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way that he is the conquering king who gives gifts to his church. So build us up in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and gather us together in worship at your feet to sit and to hear from you, to choose the better portion. Help us, O Lord, to do that today, with hearts softened to hear from you. We pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except 
in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. About eight years ago when Sarah and I moved to Massachusetts, there were lots of things that we had to get used to. The way that New Englanders approach things that we from western Pennsylvania did not approach things. One of the changes, one of the things we had to get accustomed to is New England's love for ice cream. (laughs) A little background might be helpful. Our favorite ice cream stand, at least when we're in Pennsylvania, is a tiny little ice cream stand by the name of Young's. It is the perfect rural ice cream shop. It sits quite literally in the middle of nowhere, directly across uh, across the street from a cornfield. It's been there, run by the same family, making the same recipes on the same machines since the 1950s. It's perfect. This tiny little stand with this enormous parking lot so everyone can bring their large four-wheel drive trucks and park and hang out at basically the only thing to do in Fondell, Pennsylvania. But the thing about Young's is that they're not actually an ice cream stand. They're a custard stand. And so they serve soft-serve custard. And they have, at any given time, three, count them, one, two, three flavors on offer. They always have vanilla. They always have chocolate. And then they have a third flavor that rotates. It might be maple, it might be pistachio, it might be black raspberry, which is one of my favorites. But only ever three. They've got some of the other things. If you're there and you're diabetic, you can get some of the other stuff. But they're, they're bread and butter. They're custard, if you will. Just three flavors. Now, Compare that to the way that New Englanders approach ice cream. (laughs) And the way that it seems that most ice cream stands are in some silent confectionery arms race. I mean, most of the places around have at least 50 flavors. I checked a couple different places. Kimball Farms, by the way, starts with 50 regular flavors. Then there are about 30 other flavors that they rotate in seasonally. Could you imagine if Kimball Farms says, we're going to have three? It simply wouldn't fly in New England. There's a, there's a difference in variety. You know, we still love Young's. Every time we're in Pennsylvania, we try to stop at least once. But when it comes to ice cream, variety is a good thing. I like New England variety when it comes to ice cream. In this passage, Paul wants to convince us that there is a lot of variety. And the way that the Spirit works among his people, and you know what, that variety is a good thing. It is a wonderful thing, a wonderful blessing for God's people that the Spirit doesn't work in one single monolithic way. That you don't have to choose only between vanilla and chocolate. 
maybe black raspberry if you get the choice. But the Spirit works many manifestations, many gifts among his people, and his people are also varied, and he's going to work in different ways among them, but he unites them all together around the lordship and the headship of one Lord Jesus Christ. But that variety is a good thing. Now, you might not be surprised, if you've been tracking with our study through Corinthians already, that the Corinthians had some trouble with this variety. Part of their trouble with the variety of the Holy Spirit's work among them had to do with their preconceived notions about what spirituality was supposed to be. Spirituality in the ancient Greek and Roman world was necessarily something spectacular. It was something trance-like. That's how you connected with the divine. And the more irrational, the better. Plato put it this way, No man in full possession of his senses can be touched by the divine afflatus. Now, there's a vocabulary word for you, afflatus. You can't be inspired by the divine muse. You can't actually be touching with anything real and spiritual if you've got all of your faculties intact. Spirituality is something other and spectacular. And then, in the church, there were some divisions, again, not surprisingly for Corinth, some divisions between the believers and the gifts they were experiencing. It was at this time that the Holy Spirit was still working in some pretty spectacular ways in the church. And you know what? Those believers who had received the spiritual equivalent of hunk chunk of peanut butter fudge tended to look down on those that just had vanilla. And there were divisions. And there was trouble over the varied ministry of the Spirit in their midst. And folks, you know, we have our own hang-ups with the Spirit's varied ministry. Maybe not the same hang-ups, but we've got our ideas about what spirituality looks like, right? In the Reformed Church, it's a cerebral engagement with the Scriptures. Self-discipline. What is the height of, of spiritual experience? Well, it's the person who's teaching the Bible study. It's the person who has sat through and read all of Calvin's Institutes, not just the interesting parts. It's the person who sits there and takes copious notes on the sermon as though there's going to be a test later. Man, that's real spirituality. We have our preconceived notions, don't we? We also come with a tendency sometimes to focus on the gift or on the person who has it and not on the one who gives the gift. That can leave us sometimes overinflated with the way that, that the Spirit might be working through us or deflated slightly discontent, wishing that we had the gifts that somebody else has, and why aren't we touched or gifted or empowered in the way that so-and-so is? Well, the wide and beautiful variation in the Holy Spirit's ministry in His church is not to make us self-assured, and it is not to make us discontent. It is meant to draw us to rejoice in the fact that He is able and delights to work in a variety of ways among a variety of people, all to join us under the headship and the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's unity in the church, but diversity in the gifts. And that's a good thing. There are blessings that come to the church that we could not receive in any other way if it was only vanilla or chocolate, maybe black raspberry. So today, I want to look with you at four aspects of the Holy Spirit's varied ministry. It will help us, I think, to rejoice in what he's doing among us and what he does among his people in every place. The first aspect that we need to know about the Holy Spirit's varied ministry 
is that it's all about convincing people of the lordship of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's varied ministry convinces people of the lordship of Jesus. You see this in verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, what Paul is doing here is setting up fundamental categories for spirituality. Don't be deceived by the larger context. He's not yet talking about particular gifts. Yes, he's talking about speaking, but he's not yet talking about prophecy or tongues or some of those other revelatory gifts. He's simply laying the groundwork. He's asking this basic question. What does spirituality look like? Is it wrapped up in all the things that we do and the outward stuff, or is there some, some central core to these things? Now, we know that this is what he's doing because in verse 1, what our ESVs have translated as spiritual gifts is not the word that we normally associate with uh, those spiritual gifts per se. Properly speaking, that word would be charismata, from which we get our word charismatics. No, no, no. He uses a word here that's simply a bare modifier. If we were to translate it literally, it might say something like, now concerning spiritual things. Now concerning the matters of the spirit. And even in our ESV, there's a, a footnote there to let you know that they weren't quite sure how to take this. Maybe gifts, maybe people. Let's just take it at face value. Now concerning things of the spirit. Paul is giving us a few categories, and he's leaving the categories pretty wide open. And so with all of the preconceived notions that the believers in Corinth were bringing in about what spirituality might look like, he wants to answer this one fundamental question before he does anything else in the remaining three chapters. And he's answering the question, what does spirituality look like? And he says it comes down to one question. What do you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? What do you believe about Jesus? There are only two options. You believe he was a curse, or you believe he is the Lord. Now, these are the same categories that he used earlier in his letter. It's been a while, but maybe you remember back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, Paul was talking about the way that he came proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you know what? Somebody, some people received it, and some people rejected it. At the end of that chapter, he says there are two ways of looking at these things. There's the spiritual way, and there is the natural way. And the natural man does not accept the things of God. In fact, he cannot accept the things of God because they're folly to him. But then there's the spiritual way of looking at it. The way inspired and moved and motivated by the Spirit's work in human beings. That we have the mind of Christ. That we can look at the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of Calvary and say, He clearly is the Lord. And so here's the question. Here are the categories of spirituality and non-spirituality. What do you say about Jesus? Dear friends, do you evaluate Jesus with natural eyes? The Jews in Jesus' day with their natural eyes would have looked at him and said, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed of the Lord. The Greeks and the Roman with their natural eyes would have looked at Jesus and said, you know, we're really all at the mercy of the fates anyway. Clearly, anyone who is struck down and executed by the state in the prime of his life is a marked man of some sort. We don't know what he did, but he certainly didn't escape justice. It's another way of saying he is an accursed man. 
Or maybe you look at Jesus with the natural eyes that are all around us in our American culture. You know, Jesus was a virtuous teacher, wasn't he? He had a good run. But in the end, he wound up on the wrong side of the authorities. Simply unable to play by their rules. He was at their mercy. You look at Jesus and his work on Calvary with natural eyes. Do you say, even if you don't use those words, Jesus is a cursed man at the mercy of others, or you look at the Lord with spiritual eyes. Is the Spirit at work through the mind of Christ to say, this is what the Lord has revealed. No one took his life from him, but he laid it down of his own accord. He is the Lord who is sovereign over the method and the means and the very moment of laying down his life for his people. To say that he is the Lord who had orchestrated all these things from before the foundations of the world were laid. You look at him and see that he is the Lord. That is the question of whether you are spiritual or non-spiritual. It is almost cliche anymore in our culture for people to say, I'm a spiritual person. And by that, it means basically, well, I don't just believe in science, but I also think there's something that we can't quite put our hands on. I'm a spiritual person. Paul says the main question here. It's not whether you believe in science or something other than science. The question is, what do you believe about Jesus? Is he the Lord? Now, some of you know that, that I'm a man of many hobbies. And I go through these cycles where I pick up one hobby and I get really into it for a while and then I put it down and I, I dabble in something else for a while and then I, I go through these cycles and, and through all of these cycles, I tend to get wrapped up in the externals of all these hobbies more than the real substance. Maybe you do the same. And so before I came to seminary, I was really into cycling. And I really enjoyed getting out and, and riding the roads for 50 miles at a time maybe and climbing the hills in Pennsylvania. But you know what I really loved was thinking about bikes and drivetrains and pedals and helmets and, and all the accoutrement that come along with this sort of thing. In high school, I played guitar, and it wasn't enough to have one. I had to have five and a couple amps and a room full of speakers and all the effects and everything that went along with it. But you know what? Having a shop full of tools doesn't make you a woodworker. Having a kitchen full of gadgets and appliances does not make you a chef. And merely engaging in activities that seem spiritually significant does not make you a spiritual person. The question is, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he is the Lord? Do you believe that objectively? To say that he is the Lord? With that definite article, he is the Lord of creation and ordinance and everything that has been made, that he holds the universe together with the word of his power, as his word tells us. You believe that he is the sovereign one who has numbered every hair on your head and who numbers every nuclear arsenal in North Korea and the United States. And do you lay your head on your pillow at night knowing that he is in control? Do you believe he is the Lord objectively. More to the point, though, brothers and sisters. Do you believe he's your Lord? Subjectively. Not just the Lord who rules all things, but your Lord who rules you. 
Are you growing in the grace of seeing Him and delighting in Him and forsaking your sin in order to find your peace and walking in His ways? Do you know that He is your Lord? That's what the work of the Spirit is about in the lives of His people. That's what He's doing. And in a, in a variety of ways, He sometimes works, but this is the foundational truth. He's convincing people of the Lordship of Jesus. Second thing, second aspect of the Holy Spirit's varied ministry, what he's doing is that he's revealing the character of God. In the Spirit's varied ministry, he reveals the character of God. Take a look at verses 4 through 6. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. What's Paul doing here? Well, he's tearing down this notion in the Roman world of a fractured spirituality. If you would have grabbed any pagan on the street in Paul's time and said, did you know that there are lots of different ways to express spirituality? It was sort of, of course there are lots of different ways to express spirituality. Because there are lots of different gods and demigods and goddesses and demons and all these other things and this fractured divinity that's ruling and arranging the world. Of course there are different sort of spiritualities. Who doesn't know that? And they believed that because there was a competing divine will, that the world was divided into competing spiritualities. And for the average pagan worshiper, worship was actually pretty simple. It was a two-stage affair. After you picked your, your god or your goddess of choice, first you found out what your god was into. What are the things that they really like? Now that could be the hard part. Because gods weren't talking much. They didn't give a whole lot of revelation to guide and direct the people who wanted to be devoted to them. When they did, it was in oracles and puzzles that nobody could understand. But you found out what they were into. And after you found out what they were into, you did that thing. That's it. Know what they like, do that thing. Appease the gods, keep them off your back, go about your daily life. This, by the way, is why sexual promiscuity was so rampant in Corinth. The city of Corinth hailed Aphrodite as the lady protectress of the city. Aphrodite, of course, was the goddess of love. And so if you know what the goddess of love is into, you do that thing, right? It's the way that you worshipped. It, it wasn't immorality. It wasn't wrong. It was just, it was devotion. And so you did that. But in the pagan mind, that's okay so far as it goes. But you've paid your homage to Aphrodite. But what if you happen to be one of the many merchants who live in Corinth and, and on their yearly voyages sail out in the Mediterranean to make their fortunes. Well, you've got to worry about Poseidon as well, don't you? That angry god of the sea. No bother. You know what he likes. And so you and your friends, your shipmates, once a year, you pull your money together, you go and you buy a horse. You drag that horse down to the sea and you drown it as a sacrifice. Poseidon's off your back. Great. What about Helios? What about Demeter? What about uh, all of the other gods? And you can imagine what a treadmill the pagan life was. Take care of this one, appease that one, and get this one gone, and you're running constantly between these different things, doing different devotional practices to keep the gods at bay. You can probably also imagine the anxiety of some of the new believers in Corinth. We know how this works, Paul. I've got to get it right. I, I've got to do the one thing in the church that will win God's favor, and yet I come into the church and spirituality seems to be this wide spectrum. And that person over there thinks they're going to please the Lord by 
giving to the poor. This one wants to teach in the common meeting. He's got a word of prophecy. She's working acts of kindness. And just all we want to know, Paul, which one do we have to do? Which flavor do we choose, Paul? Tell us the one that we've got to do. And he says, no, 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 no. You're looking at it all wrong. Yes, in the church, there is this diversity of spiritual gifting and empowerment and lots of spiritual activities, but it doesn't mean that we're worshiping different gods or that he's pleased with different things. It's simply revealing the character of the God who exists in unity and diversity. This is Trinitarian Theology 101. The only God who exists exists in one perfect united essence. There is one God. We are monotheistic to the core. And that one God who exists also exists in three persons. Not three separate gods, three persons. There's unity and there's diversity. And so as you look out into the church, you think, man, everybody's doing something different and which one is the right one? Which one is the best way to express Christian spirituality? We say, well, the Lord delights to show his diversity in his people as he gathers them around one united profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, I think what he's doing, verses 4 through 6, he's talked about gifts, he's talked about services, he's talked about uh, activities. Those are all, in a sense, separate categories, different things, but they can all be summed up with, with one little word, manifestations. All of these are manifestations of one Spirit. Now, the question is, what is a manifestation? It's where God shows up. He manifests himself among his people. And you know what? He does it in lots of different ways. Gifts and services and activities. He's working all of them and all of his diverse people, but it's one God who's showing up in all of these different ways. Brothers and sisters, I hope you understand the freedom that this is proclaiming to you for service in the church. There are some people sitting here who, you know what? They are gifted for teaching. There are other people sitting here who are terrified at the thought. It's not that they think that learning the word is unimportant. It's not that they think that teaching the children is a waste of time. They're the future of the church. They're simply not gifted for it. That's okay. Because the Lord may have gifted that person temperamentally. He may have gifted them financially to be able to give generously, incredibly generously to missions or to mercy ministries. And the teacher ought not to look down on the giver, and the giver ought not to idolize the teacher and vice versa. There's freedom in the church. In all of these things, it's one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is manifesting himself. He's showing up in this diverse body of people that he has gathered together. There's freedom to serve the Lord in whatever accords with the godliness that we find in his word. Whatever gifting he's given you, wherever he seems to have placed you, where you are right now, you can serve him there. And through it all, the Lord is revealing his beautiful character among his diverse people. Isn't that a blessing of the variety of the Spirit's ministry? The third thing that the Spirit does, his varied work blesses the gathered body. The Spirit's varied work blesses 
the gathered body. Verse 7 again. Paul shows us that there is a purpose the Lord has for each of the individual gifts and manifestations. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's the purpose. To bless the gathered body all together. A little prefix on that word in the Greek is sim. It's the same word that we get symphony. All of the instruments playing together and when they come together and they're attuned, there's one beautiful music that's played. It's for the common good. The Lord is working to bless the gathered people. Now he, he follows this word in verse 7 with this list of the gifts, spiritual manifestations. Not all of them are gifts. Some of them are activities. Some of them are services. Some of them are gifts. But he uses uh, this list in verses 8 through 10, all these spiritual manifestations. Now, there are a few things you need to know about this list, two things in particular. First, that this list is not exhaustive. This is not the be-all, end-all of the spiritual gifts of the Christian life. It's not intended to be. It's representative. It seems to be representative of particularly the gifts the Lord was working in Corinth at that time. It's not intended to be exhaustive. You can look in other places, Romans 12, for example, and it adds other gifts to the list, things like service and exhortation, things like generosity and teaching and acts of mercy. This is not exhaustive. In fact, he does not even add the greatest Christian gift of all. Save that for the next chapter, love. It's not even in here. So this isn't exhaustive. And, and secondly, you need to know that it doesn't seem to be in any particular order. Now, there are scholars that bend over backwards and do acrobatics interpretationally to try and figure out some sort of order. Yes, there are schemes that we can put together, but there's no order just laying on the top that jumps out at us and says, pay attention to me. It's not in any particular order. I don't want to say it's random because... The Lord, who inspired these things, has a reason for listing them in, in his own way. And, and yes, there are ways we can categorize these. Maybe we talk about gifts of word and gifts of deed. There are other things, but, but it's not in any particular order. Take a look at verse 28 of the same chapter. Now, here we have an order, okay? Verse 28, and God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, and then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. There's an order, but not here in this passage in the beginning of the chapter. Why is there no order? Why is it not this exhaustive inventory of, of spiritual gifts for Corinth? Well, could it be that our attention is not meant to be focused on deciphering this list of gifts? Could it be that our attention is meant to be placed somewhere else? You know the way that we so often approach these things? We turn it into an inventory. A way to check to make sure that everything is present and accounted for in the church. Or worse, we make it a way of evaluating ourselves. So if you go off to the state schools and you take Psych 101, you're going to start off with your Myers-Briggs personality test. But you know, Christians, we can do one better, can't we? Discover your giftedness. As though that were the key to a robust spirituality in the Lord. It might be good for self-discovery and all that. I'm not knocking those things, but it's not the key, and it's certainly not what Paul is drawing our attention to here. 
What is he drawing our attention to? Well, it's not our personal gifting. It's not even the gifts themselves. He is drawing our attention to the work of the Spirit in each of the people. Don't overlook the boring words. What are the boring words? To each, to one, to another, to another, to another, to another, over and over and over again for all of these nine gifts. The Spirit is at work in a varied way in all of his people, and none are left out. But he's doing it all for one reason, isn't he? For the common good. So that God's varied and diverse, individualistic people will know the joy of being knit together into one body with many members. The blessing of the Spirit's work for the common good. And this is what he's doing. If we get this wrong, we turn our spirituality into something like a large, painful, ingrown toenail. Pushing and straining just to go in the wrong direction when what it needs to do and what it wants to do is to get out. The spiritual gifts in the church are meant to have an outward focus. Don't turn these things inward. That's what he's telling us here. And you see the way that some of these gifts work for the good of the body gathered, don't you? Faith. That's puzzling, isn't it? I mean, all, all Christians have a measure of faith. We can call one another believers, those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have faith, but some have the gift, don't they? Some might wish that they didn't have the gift because that gift often manifests itself in those hard situations. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, faith manifests itself in martyrdom very often and leaving off the things that the world considers gain. But you know what? When the church gathered looks on those in their midst who have this incredible faith, even in hard times, the whole church is strengthened. You've seen it. You're seeing it now. And some that the Lord chooses to give faith are strengthening the whole body. What about wisdom and knowledge? What a shame if the wisest person in the room who has the most knowledge of the scriptures and, and the word of God were to sit there sitting on his hands and with his mouth shut or her mouth shut and not speaking up and not telling us about the wisdom the Lord has given. This is meant to be for the common good. Maybe in your Sunday schools or, or in your Bible studies or just in gatherings one with another. This is meant to build up the church. It's not difficult to think how miracles or healings could benefit the body in Corinth. And in a time of prophetic revelation, discernment was a dire need for the body. Now, we're getting into some of those controversial issues, aren't we? I told you we're going to wait until chapter 14, but we might as well take just a, a brief glimpse. What about those other three that we haven't mentioned yet? Prophecy and tongues and, and interpretation of tongues. There are normally a few questions that we ask when we think about these things. One question is, how were these things meant to benefit the body? Because again, if we make these things about ourselves, any three of them, uh, we, we miss the point. How are they meant to benefit the body, and does the Holy Spirit still do this? Those are the two questions that we normally have about these, these gifts of prophecy and tongues and interpretation. Well, to answer the first one, the point of all three was to build up the body through acts of special revelation. It was meant to reveal mysteries of the Lord. Take a look in chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. 
The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If the church together isn't going to be benefited through special revelation in each of these gifts, the speaker might as well stay silent. That's what we'll find later. The whole point, the reason they were given is to benefit the church by special revelation. Okay. Does the Holy Spirit still do that? The answer is no. He doesn't. There is no need for it anymore. Paul is writing at a time uh, where there is coming yet a time, yet in the future, from Paul's standpoint. Remember, 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest letters, together with Galatians and, and Thessalonians, one of the earliest letters written to the church within 20 years of the death and resurrection of Christ. And the full counsel of God's word had not been poured out yet, but there is coming a day when God's word would be breathed out in its entirety, its completeness, to prepare the man of God for every good work so that he would be sufficient for all things. There's coming a time when all of the revelation will be given. And when that day comes, there will be no more need for further special revelation. This seems to be what Paul is getting at in chapter 13. So look in verses 8 through 10. Turn there. First Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We're going to reserve this until we get there, but notice what he's saying. What is partial now? Prophecy. What will be perfect then? Prophecy. What are the gifts he signals, singles out? Does he say that, that miracles, working and healing within the body of God, does he say those things will pass away? No. Does he say that administration and helps and encouragement and exhortation will pass away? No. He singles out revelatory gifts. As for prophecies, tongues, and knowledge, it will pass away because there's coming a day when the perfect will come. All right, got that out of my system. But what this means is that no, the Spirit doesn't work through these gifts of revelation. And that means that when you're watching the television and there's one of those TV preachers on there and they tell you that they are a, prof a prophet of God, the correct response is not to send them your money, but to change the channel. It means when you have a friend or a family member who comes up to you and says, I have a word of revelation from the Lord for you. The proper response is to say, thank you, I've already gotten the message. If you'd like, I can get you a copy and you can read it too. The Lord does not need to have special revelation anymore. At best, it would be superfluous. Because the word of God makes the people of God perfect for every good work, sufficient for every good work. So he doesn't work that way. But you know what? He did in Corinth. He absolutely did in Corinth. Prophecy in tongues and interpretation of tongues. And what a blessing for the whole body. Here was a church with needs and trying circumstances. And they couldn't simply flip to Romans and say, well, you know, Paul said somewhere else that couldn't do that. 
And so the Lord is revealing himself and his mysteries and snippets and in partial ways. He's blessing the whole body when they get together. But the point of all of these gifts was to build up the church of Christ together. There is a popular game, <clears throat> excuse me, popular game in youth group. I know because I led one for a long time. There's a popular game in youth groups that involves carrying a ping pong ball on a spoon. And it's a relay race. You go from here to there and your partner carries it back. And the point of the game is that the, the ping pong ball tends to wobble and fall off. And if it falls off the spoon, you pick it up, you go back to the start, you start all over again. The problem in Corinth is that they never came back to this starting point. Here's the spirit working among them and doing wonderful things. And they drop the ball and they start to think, well, maybe these things are about us. And they never return to this truth of what the Spirit is doing is blessing the gathered people, not merely individuals. They forgot that if the Spirit's work is to bring a blessing to the whole body, we ought to be striving to do the same thing by the strength that he gives us. It doesn't require a test. It doesn't require an inventory. It requires knowing and realizing that the Lord is working in, in various ways in his people and through his church. And then it requires opening your eyes in faith and in prayer to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? What are you working in me? What varied way can I bless the whole body? That's what spiritual gifts are all about. Fourth aspect, and we find it just in that last verse there. What is the Lord doing through his varied work? Well, he's displaying his sovereign choice. The Holy Spirit is displaying his sovereign choice. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the final nail in the coffin to put to rest spiritual discontentment. Brothers and sisters, if you had any idea the kinds of giftings and the abilities that I can so often become envious of in other pastors and Christian leaders, be very careful. I'm not fishing for compliments. Don't pat me on the back later. It'll be awkward for you and more awkward for me. I'm not saying this so that you will think, oh, what a shame. It's simply a reality. When I hear other people preach or I read other blogs or I watch someone else lead, there is that nagging sense that I must be out of place or somehow insufficient or, or not doing what I ought to be doing. There's that sense of discontentment. But I'll bet every other person in this room has felt that at some time or another. How do I know I'm doing what I ought to be doing in the church? And man, I wish I could do that other thing. I can try, but you know, it just man, it doesn't have the same ring to it. I like kids, but ew, the nursery, I don't know. And we feel ill-equipped, but this verse puts it to rest. It's a reminder that we serve a God who is good, a God who is wise, and a God who is sovereign. And wherever he's placed you and however he has gifted you is exactly what you need to bless the body. Would that we would engage with that and do it. Would that we would stop wasting our time, wishing that we had what somebody else has, and simply say, Lord, what have you put before me? Where am I? Who do I know? Who can I speak to? What can I do? It might just be praying for those who are in need. And you've got the gift of faith. Praise the Lord. Use it. 
to bless the body. He works in lots of different ways, and he does it because he delights to work in a variety of people so that the Lord would be known in his church. Part of the task of Christian discernment is to trace the steps back to the giver and to stop looking at the gift. When we see somebody who speaks well or leads well or encourages well or gives well or does well or whatever it is, that we look at that and we praise the Lord. Because we recognize that it's not that person that's working at all. In fact, without the Spirit's working, they would look at Jesus and say, He is an accursed man. And it traces all the way back to what is the Spirit working in His people. That's His focus in all of this, that we would look to the giver of the gifts and not just to the gifts that we don't have or wish we had or are proud that we have. That's Christian discernment. Christian joy involves praising the Lord for where He's placed you and how the beauty of God's handwork is evident in the incredible variety of His gifts and His people. There you have it. Four things that we need to know about the Spirit's buried work in His people. He's convincing men and women of the Lordship of Jesus. He is revealing the character of God. He is bringing a blessing to the gathered body, and He's revealing His sovereign choosing. If you are His, He's doing it in you, and He's doing it for all of us, and He's doing it so that Christ would be lifted high. Let's rejoice in His work together. Let's pray. O our King and our Lord, sovereign chooser of all that we have, one who stands over us and directs our every way to you. Help us, gracious Father, to grow in an appreciation for the Lordship of Christ. Help us to be committed, to rejoice in what you're doing, and to serve one another in love. Help us to adorn your work in the church with gladness and joy and rejoicing in your varied ministry. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We come now to a table that, much like the Spirit's ministry and His people, proclaims diversity and unity together. We'll take one piece and break it among the many. We'll take one symbol and many will receive it. And it's a picture that the Lord is really doing one thing. Through the sacrificial ministry of Jesus Christ, he is gathering a whole host of people together in himself. Experience him a little bit differently sometimes. And maybe you've come in with a little bit of experience this past week than somebody else has. And you wonder if you are worthy to come to this table. If he is working in you such that you have looked to the Lord Jesus and said, he is my Lord, you can come to this table.